glad you're here. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Very glad to meet you. It's, I'm so happy that you are here. If you've been around for a while, thank you. We're having fun, aren't we? I'm having fun. This is season seven, and we're discussing summer blockbusters outside of the Christmas release season, my favorite time of year for movies. This is episode four, and we're moving from dinosaurs to aliens, which seems like a very natural transition. Abrupt, maybe, but no less apocalyptic. Actually, even more so because the chaos starts immediately on Independence Day. Fun fact, I'm actually recording this a little early on July 4th because I just had to. It felt right. Independence Day was directed by Roland Emmerich, a name I was completely unfamiliar with. He's a German director who seems to really like making big budget blockbusters. Turns out I'm actually very familiar with several of his movies. Are they great movies? No, but I'm familiar with them. He also directed Universal Soldier with Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren. Why I know that one, I don't know. Godzilla, The Patriot, which Mel Gibson and Heath Ledger, I was big Heath Ledger fan. Of course, I know The Patriot. The Day After Tomorrow and 2019's Midway. A Apparently, he's known as the master of disaster in the film industry, which I think is like the coolest nickname you could get. I don't know if you really want to wear that around always, kind of pigeonholes you into certain types of movies, but I love it anyway. The screenplay was written by Emmerich and this guy named Dean Devlin, who's done a lot of work in TV, but it looks like he's mostly worked with Emmerich and the properties the director is directly affiliated with, so Godzilla, The Day After Tomorrow, all of those. Independence Day came out on July 3rd, 1996, and of course stars Bill Pullman, Jeff Goldblum, Randy Quaid, Vivica A. Fox, and Will Smith. Kind of a motley crew. It's not a group of people you're like, let's throw these people together. And the very cool thing about this movie uh, is that there are so many other like, hey, I know who that is. Hey, I've seen them in this. Uh, It's a great movie to have your IMDb open because you're going to see somebody you know, and then you'll be diving down that rabbit hole to figure out where else you saw them. It was a unique summer for movies. Again, much like this Motley crew, it's a Motley group of of movies. It's not, I I, I don't know, it's it's a strange, we'll just go through them. It's um, a weird mix between action and um, drama and just some vulgar comedies. It's It was interesting. So first we've got The Rock with Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage. Uh, Also The Cable Guy with Jim Carrey and Matthew Broderick. Mall Flanders with Robin Wright, Morgan Morgan Freeman, and Stockard Channing. This was, I really like this one. I actually own this one. I rewatch it fairly often, at least once a year. I put it in because I enjoy it. Robin Wright's just a beautiful human. Um, but it's, I also in college had to do, uh, we got assigned a project where you read a classic book and then you had to watch a movie adaptation of that book and compare and contrast and talk about how the story changed and why that might have happened. Um, and that's what I chose. I chose Mall Flanders. Eraser with Arnold Schwarzenegger came out. Disney's The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which we've talked about on the podcast in season one. Not a big fan. The Nutty Professor with Eddie Murphy. Courage Under Fire with Meg Ryan, Denzel Washington, and Matt Damon. Multiplicity with Michael Keaton. Train Spotting with Ewan McGregor. I told you, it's a weird group of movies. A Time to Kill with Sandra Bullock and Matthew McConaughey. That one gutted me. The whole story did. I actually remember reading A Time to Kill my senior year of high school in study hall, and the study hall teacher had to keep coming up to me asking me if I was okay, because I clearly was not okay. Kingpin with Woody Harrelson and Randy Quaid. Big summer for Randy Quaid. Chain Reaction with Keanu Reeves. Emma with Gwyneth Paltrow. Matilda with Danny DeVito and Mara Wilson. Tin Cup with Kevin Costner. 
The Island of Dr. Moreau with Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer. And the last one, a very Brady sequel. Seriously, what an eclectic mix of movies to all come out in one summer over the course of about three months. Fascinating. Now for the box office report for Independence Day. The budget was an estimated $75 million. On its opening weekend, it brought in over $50 million. Again, not shabby, and would go on to make over $306 million domestically and $817 million worldwide. It was the highest grossing movie of 1996 and was the second highest grossing of all time after Jurassic Park at that time. They've both, of course, been dethroned, uh, but very popular movie in 1996. Which leads us to the movie summary. I have a sneaking suspicion you are familiar with this one, but just in case you're not, it's a very simple plot. Just a couple of days before the 4th of July, a ginormous alien spacecraft mothership thing shows up in Earth's orbit and then deploys a bunch of miniature ships to sit intimidatingly over important cities worldwide. And when I say miniature, I mean it covers the entire city. So imagine how big the mothership is. Here in the States, those cities just happen to be New York, LA, and DC, of course. They are the unlucky chosen cities. That immediately creates a frenzy. People end up in one of two camps. They're either climbing to the top of buildings with homemade signs welcoming the visitors uh, from light years away, or they're spiraling quickly, packing up what belongings they have, uh, stuffing it into the car, and attempting to get out of town, which is tricky. It's clogging up the highways. The movie follows a few different people. Uh, Stephen Hiller is a kind of a cocky U.S. Marine pilot who has been trying to get into the NASA program. He's a nice guy. He's a very good guy, but he just he's a little arrogant, kind of full of himself. Uh, so you have him. Um, he has he was with his girlfriend when he discovers that there is a ship over, you know, L.A. He's a little worried um, and wants to get right back to the base. She doesn't want him to leave. They have a situation. So that's when we meet Steve Hiller, who I should know is played by Will Smith. And then we also have this guy named David Levinson. He's an MIT trained satellite technician who has managed to decode a signal from the enemy ships, which he determines is a countdown clock until attack. So he's like, this is not friendly. Those people that are climbing on top of those buildings to welcome the aliens, they they are in for trouble because they are going to attack. He just so happens to be the ex-husband of a woman who works in the White House for the president. Um, And so we meet him having this information that he now has, and he's trying to get to her to let her know what is going on so that the president has all of the information. Him and the president apparently have a bit of a a history only because Levinson, played by Jeff Goldblum, they intuit that he he believed that his ex-wife was having an affair or something to that effect, had feelings for the president. The president is a happily married man, which we'll get to in a second. You also have this guy named Russell Case. Uh, He's a Vietnam vet who believes that he was abducted by aliens uh, and violated... (laughs) It's not funny, uh, but but it is. He is played by Randy Quaid. He uh, he's kind of a drunk. He's he's a deadbeat. All of that between his PTSD from Vietnam and what he believes happened to him by the aliens, he's in a rough spot. He has a couple of kids. They 
are kind of caring for themselves because he's not a great dad. Uh, but as soon as they find out about the aliens and he's, you know, all on board, hey, yes, I knew this was going to happen eventually, he gets them into their RV and they start heading towards Area 51 with this kind of whole convoy of other people seeking sanctuary. Why you would think that would be the safest place to go, I don't fully understand because Area 51 is supposed to be where all of the alien technology and spacecraft that we have found and and the experimentation and research that we're doing is located. So why would you want to go there? What if they were holding something that the aliens wanted? You would have just put yourself right in danger. But I, I digress. And finally, we have President Whitmore. Uh, he is played by Bill Pullman, who had no idea that there was an Area 51. Apparently, that's not something they readily tell the president. Can you imagine? I, I was thinking about this, too. You know, there I'm sure there are tons of stuff, and you see it all the times in movies, secrets that only the president knows. And then you know that secret forever. But when you, you know, you go through the whole campaign process, you're finally elected for president. I'd be like, okay, tell me everything. Let's just dish. Give me the tea. I want to I wanna know it all. And then I think that'd just be a heavyweight to carry around with you for the rest of your life. Like, I can't talk about it, but I know things. I don't know how they do it. I'm got, I got off traf- track again. I'm sorry. Um, so the, the president has no idea that Area 51 was real. It, um, he barely escapes D.C. So the aliens do, in fact, attack and he gets out of D.C. and they send him to Area 51. Uh, spoiler, D.C. is destroyed for safety. So he's on, you know, Air Force One. He goes. His wife, um, she is somewhere else. She was doing some kind of event somewhere and she's trying to get to him and his daughter as well. So those are all of the big players, kind of the gist. The aliens are here. Some people kind of know what's going on. They've got to decide what to do. And they come up with a a two-part plan, a ridiculous two-part plan. First part is to send Hiller, Will Smith, and Levinson, Jeff Goldblum, into space uh, to... They, they, oh, there was a captured flying saucer at Area 51 that just so happens to be from the same aliens that have now attacked. Again, are they coming for this ship? I don't know. Is it like, hey, that's my son. I want him back, you know, kind of thing that you see in movies occasionally, E.T. Uh, so, you know, they, they've had this for a while. They figure out finally, Goldblum, because he is a genius, he figures out how this, this machine works. They've never been able to figure that out. Um, it's just been sitting there for years in this top secret facility. So the plan is to put these two men into the ship, fly this alien spacecraft to the mothership. Uh, let, hopefully they'll let you in, dock in their docking bay, and then install um, a virus in the alien computer system, thus taking down its shields. That is the that is part one. Part two is to send the president, remaining military, and some randos, including Randy Quaid, into space or into the air to fire upon the flying saucers, the the miniature ones that are hovering over the cities, as soon as the shields are down. There is no contact between Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum and the president and his fleet of um, would be pilots, you know, so how they just like, I think it's time to shoot. (laughs) So they do that. Um, that's where Russell case, 
uh, Randy Quaid kind of he is all pumped for this because this is his chance to get his vengeance uh, for what the aliens did to him in the past when he was abducted. So they the shields do go down. They are successful. Um, the president starts to shoot. They, of course, release like even more miniature ships to attack. So it's a very Star Wars-esque fight in the air, in the atmosphere uh, between our military and these alien um, I don't know, militants. And then they see, okay, there's like the ultimate weapon in one of these ships that it starts to open up. The bottom of the ship starts to open up and this beam of light starts. And that is what like hits the earth. And then there's a big explosion. So they've got to destroy this weapon. The president has run out of missiles. It comes down to Randy Quaid, to Russell Case, who he has the last one, but it misfires. And he knows that the only thing he can really do is sacrifice himself. So he flies into the weapon to destroy it. Well, the pre- it works. Spoiler. The president like, spreads the word worldwide and fighters across the globe take out the remaining invaders that are hovering over their own cities as humanity rejoices. Oh, and Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum do make it back home, even though um, the ship kind of got stuck and the aliens realized that they were not of their own kind uh, and, you know, tried to stop them. But everybody lives because, of course, everybody. That's not true. Spoiler, the first lady dies, which is kind of sad. Um, Mae Whitman, that is her name. That is the daughter. A very tiny baby Mae Whitman. And it's just, it was adorable. This movie is seriously ridiculous, but it's not hard to figure out why it's a good time. Each actor does exactly what he needs to do for the main character. And in most cases, those actors are just being themselves, uh, which makes them likable in their own way so that you're rooting for them all to win. You want them to win. Then you get a lot of, like I said, cameos from well-known individuals or names that you may go like, hey, I know that person. They're in insert name of movie or TV show. A couple of my favorites include Adam Baldwin. He's one of the servicemen at Area 51. He was in Firefly with Nathan Fillion, and he was on Chuck with Zachary Levi. Or there's Harry Connick Jr., who plays Steve Hiller's kind of bestie at the Marine base. He gets a brief moment, and he croons a little because he's Harry Connick Jr. Mary McDonnell, who plays the First Lady. She, of course, fell in love with Kevin Costner and Dances with Wolves. Judd Hirsch as Levinson's compassionate and kind father. He was on Numbers. Or Harvey Firestein, who played Robin Williams' brother in Mrs. Doubtfire. There's one more that's great before I forget him, too. He's he's not the most visible face if you're not familiar with sci-fi television, but Brent Spiner of Star Trek The Next Generation fame. He played Data. He plays this crazy mad scientist. Oh, it's just, it's brilliant. So, so many familiar faces, and I think that's what makes this movie a lot of fun, too. Overall, though, the movie does hold up pretty well. The jokes, the action the special effects, the presidential hype speech absolutely stands up. And I think Bill Pullman was the perfect person to deliver it. He's gentle and sincere, the guy you want to take up arms with. I mean, it's just, as we get into the tidbits, there's one about that, that, you know, he, the the crowd who had not heard the speech before, and there's no stakes in the game for these actors, these extras who are playing roles, they start to cheer for him when it's done. So that's an organic cheer in the movie because they enjoyed it so much. I mean, when somebody's like, we will not go quietly into the night, we will not vanish without a fight, we're going to live on, we're going to survive today, we celebrate our Independence Day. Yeah, yeah, you're going to cheer great speech. One of my favorite pop culture presidential speeches. A few other things in particular stand out. 
Uh, one is how sad it is that I would like to say just in movie land, but it's that's not true. It happens even now that it takes a horrible event to bring people together. We know this is true. We've seen it happen in our lifetime. We know that following a traumatic and devastating situation, people put their differences aside and they rally and it's beautiful. We also know that it's fleeting. I'd like to believe that once the aliens are dead and the highways are clear as the survivors kind of make their way back home, that the dedication and cooperation stick around for a while. Probably won't because I'm a pessimist about that, I guess, even though I'm typically not. But I, I, I always enjoy that in the movies to be able to see when that happens because it gives you hope that it'll happen, you know, even here, even in real life. And back to hope, that there's always hope. That stands out. It's Is it reasonable, responsible hope all of the time? No, but humanity is resilient and people will step up to fight for their neighbor when needed, which we're going to see in the next movie too that we talk about. Unrelated, and and I only have to talk about this one because I love the idea of aliens, Um, but two, I just find this fascinating that in June of 2021, which was, you know, a tough time, tough time, we were living it, the U.S. intelligence community finally released this long-awaited report on what it knows about a series of mysterious flying objects that have been seen moving through the restricted military airspace over the last several decades. So this report's like, yes, we acknowledge that there are these mysterious flying objects and we don't know what they are. It's one of the first times the U.S. government has publicly acknowledged this, these strange aerial sightings, and, um, you know, finally supporting the Navy pilots that they had kind of scrutinized or gaslit for so long that no it's not what you you know you don't you didn't really see that did they find did we find out much no um there wasn't a whole lot in the report but guys the government was like hey our people have seen some things that can't be explained and that piece of news which should kind of have been big just sailed past of us because the dumpster was on fire our all of our dumpsters were on fire during that time what a time we've been having that hey there could be aliens out there they finally say it they like hey we have this report there are things we can't explain we don't know what's going on we should be like what and instead we're like yeah yeah you know what that feels right 2021 But now to my favorite part of uh, this season, where we're talking about these apocalyptic movies, these big summer blockbusters, and why I wouldn't have survived them. This one is a little up in the air on the survival front, actually. There's a chance, since I live in central Indiana, it would appear that aliens don't hunt down Midwesterners, which which is good for the Hoosiers. They didn't even go over Chicago. But let's... You know, so it's like, hey, okay, I might, I'll at least live longer. But for the sake of the conversation, let's just say I were to find myself in a big city or the country's capital. What are my odds? I can make you a few guarantees. One, I would not be climbing up to the roof of a building with a homemade sign to welcome the visitors. While meeting someone who genuinely believes they have been abducted by aliens is on my actual bucket list to talk to them sincerely about their experience. I don't, in fact, want to meet an alien in real life unless it's like E.T. or Superman. That would be awesome. Or the Iron Giant or Max from Max and Me. I just I don't want to meet one in real life. But I am absolutely fascinated by the people and their experiences that they've had or believed to have had. I just it's fascinating to me. I'm not 
a great sleeper. And I got very into Coast to Coast AM for a while during my insomnia. And while I enjoyed episodes about the paranormal, I always got really excited when the stories were more in the realm of visitors from other planets. So I would not be going to greet them. I would want to watch it play out and be like, let's let's talk about this. And then want to talk to the people who were there when it happened. But I don't want to be there when it happens. So that's one guarantee. Second guarantee is that there's a distinct possibility I would have just locked all of my doors and found a place to hide in my house. <laughs> if the aliens can't see me, then they can't kill me. Uh, yes, they do have that big weapon that just blows up entire cities, but one can hope. But if we're being honest with one another, I would have been blown up by the first attack, and it wouldn't have mattered if I was hiding in my home or sitting on the interstate trying to get out of Dodge. I would be dead. So that's, that's the end of it. Uh, should the characters have survived where I would not have? No. No, they shouldn't. They gave the alien ship a computer virus. That was the big plan. So no. And that's about all my argument for that. I mean, and also a pilot that flies human jets. You've got, he is Will Smith. I will grant you that. But he flies human ships. He just hops in to an alien spacecraft and gets it almost on the first try. I mean, it's a little rocky at the very beginning, but he just within five minutes has it airborne no way no way you understand their technology no way you trust that they breathe the same kind of air that you breathe they did not even put helmets on how did they know that they would be able to breathe once they got into space or once they docked in this mothership <sighs> no and again they gave the alien technology a computer virus everyone is dead everyone did i want everyone to die no i'm glad it ended the way it did but that doesn't matter. Everyone should be dead in this movie. Now, for a few <laughs> interesting tidbits, uh, the, the screenwriter with the director, Dean Devlin, said that most of the dialogue in the scenes between Jeff Goldblum shared with Judd Hirsch and Will Smith was improvised, which does not surprise me at all. I kind of wonder if Jeff Goldblum really follows much of a script at all. Uh, as I mentioned, the president's speech was a fan favorite for the extras. They gave him a rounding standing applause, uh, which is in the movie when you hear them cheering for him. It was actually filmed on, Aug that scene was filmed on August 6th, 1995, in front of an old airplane hangar that once housed the Enola Gay, which dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, exactly 50 years earlier on August 6th, 1945. I don't think they would have planned that particularly like, hey, we should film on this day, but what a very strange coincidence. In the movie at around two hours and 10 minutes, Jeff Goldblum uses one of his lines from Jurassic Park because of course he did. He goes, must go faster, must go faster. And apparently it was delivered with the same intensity. I read this after I did my rewatch, so I haven't had a chance to go back and, and see if that is true. In Jurassic Park, I do believe that's the scene where he is riding on the back of the Jeep after Ellie and, um, oh, I can't remember his name, the, the safari looking guy. <laughs> who hunts the raptors, that they had gone and found him as they were trying to find the kids and Alan Grant. Devlin and director Roland Emmerich penned the script in just four weeks, which you can tell. It was sent out on a Thursday, and they started fielding offers the next day. By Monday, they were in pre-production. I mean, yeah, it was a horrible script, but look what it, it did. I mean, it was a box office blast, so you can't fault them. 
hey, let's just churn out a couple more of those. At least one a summer. Like that, I think would be good. You wouldn't want all of your movies to be like that, but one a summer because that's what summer movies are supposed to be. Except for the biplane during the crop dusting scene and any airplane seen in the air in this film is either a model or computer-generated effect. It's kind of interesting why they chose the crop dusting scenes. <laughs> it's like, nope, let's make this one real. And finally, the alien spacecraft in Area 51, the one that had been sitting there in the secret facility for several years, was a full-scale model measuring 65 feet wide. You don't see that in movies as much, really. When you watch the kind of the behind-the-scenes of something, like let's say the, the Marvel movies, the Avengers movies, nine times out of ten, the footage that they show you is that these actors are just in a giant warehouse with green screens, and that is it, and they're acting to nothing. So I love when you see and hear these these movies that actually built the sets, you do see that in Harry Potter that because they were filming, you know, eight movies that they had several sets that people, and you can still go visit them today and see some of the sets, but you don't, I don't know. You just don't see that as much. And I, I, I love that little tidbit. I love that little fact. And that's going to close it out. That's all for today. We'll be back up in space next episode with the tearjerker Armageddon. Yes, I did call it a tearjerker. Don't even try to deny that the movie doesn't make you cry. Sometimes from awkwardness, but definitely at the touching sacrifice at the end. Spoiler. Thank you so much for listening. Really, it is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so we can keep going on this journey together. And if you've got the time, it would be awesome if you could rate and review so that other individuals who like random conversations about pop culture with someone who really doesn't know what they're talking about but has a great time doing it, well, they can join in on the fun as well. Or if you want to share the podcast, that would be awesome too. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at, at @gnomegirlm and on Facebook is a bit of fun with Emily. Hey, go have yourself a bit of fun today and I will see you next time.